Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher with over 15 years of experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is to help yoga teachers transform their teaching by mastering the fundamentals of anatomy. By learning anatomy in my easy step-by-step way, you'll be able to confidently share it in your cues, easily create sequences, and you'll eagerly answer student questions. And all along the way, you'll increase your impact and earning potential. On the podcast here, you will hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. Once you listen to today's episode, go ahead and visit barebonesyoga.com, my website, for free resource guides for teachers. Download any and all that are there, including one of my most popular tools, my sequence building template. And if you'd like, send me a one-line email with the answer to this question. What's your biggest frustration right now as a yoga teacher? And I'm happy to do some brainstorming with you in a free coaching session. My email address is karen at barebonesyoga.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. Let's get to today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 172. Well, you are in for another treat because I have my dear friend, my longtime yoga colleague, Amy Sullivan, uh, coming in on the podcast. And we are going to really get into an interesting conversation, which is based on the thesis she is writing for grad school. She's going to grad school to become a therapist. And that's not a yoga therapist, although she is a yoga therapist, but she is now transitioning to becoming a therapist, a, a general therapist. And so part of her thesis is to discuss a particular um, idea concept. And I saw her write about it on her Instagram and it sounded really cool. So I wanted her to come on the show and to talk about it in detail. So this is really one where you're going to want to get a pen and paper cup of tea or whatever your favorite drink is and really sit down and kind of get immersed. This is sort of like being in school. I actually think you could probably get some CEUs for this. Um, so, so that's kind of the, the lay of the land for today's episode. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail here in the intro, cause I want you to really go in with a fresh uh, mind as to what you're going to learn about, what you're going to hear about. We'll start out, of course, with a little background on Amy. Amy is a longtime, very experienced yoga teacher. She's led her own trainings all around the world. She's lived in many different places and has done a number of different things. And her um, uh, the front end of this conversation is a little bit about her journey. So you'll have a chance to meet her. You may recognize her if you go to her website, um, amysullivanyoga.com because she was on the cover of Yoga Journal back uh, about seven or eight years ago. And uh, she is just a longtime, very experienced wealth of knowledge teacher. So I'm going to pretty much put a, put a bow on it for the intro. And we're going to dive into that episode without any further delay. So here we go. 
This is my conversation with Amy Sullivan. Hi, Amy. Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm sorry. I, I thought puppy was going to be able to hang, but she had to go back into her crate. So I had to chase her down. <laughs> oh gosh. Yes. I've seen your adorable dog on, uh, on your Instagram. That no, is so great. You have a new dog too? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got Coco. We got Coco in March, uh, of last year, March 7th. So mm -hmm. he's a rescue dog from Arkansas. Okay. And, uh, yeah. After three, I've had three dogs in my life. Actually, I've had five, but no, I had three and they've all been yellow labs. And this was my first rescue kind of blend of types. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. He's yeah. a handful. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Definitely a handful. Yeah. We're really leaning into a lot of training with him. I mean, at least mm -hmm. I am with yeah. Ben he's kind of like, Ben is the fun guy and I'm like the training person. <laughs> totally. I know. I'm trying to do the same thing in my family. Yeah. Is Coco a puppy or is she old? He, um, he turned a year around, they're guessing, in October. So he's like a year and okay. six months. That's yeah. still like a puppy. So yeah, sure. they really need to be trained at that age, yeah. you know, because then it makes your life easier. In the exactly. later years, if you like kind of get it all out of the way, I think I'm the dog whisperer. So like <laughs> when I had Gracie, she was a rescue from Katrina and okay. she was racist. She hated black people. Oh. She hated children. She hated people. She hated other dogs. Like she was abused. She was just like so scared yeah. of everything. It was really hard. Yeah. So um, I took her to our trainer and the trainer was like, you, um, you, she's so smart that you just have to keep her like really, really engaged and interested. So I taught her like 40 commands. It's like, she got older. She was just like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Like the, yeah. the side at like, nope, not, you know, like she's just oh, wow. really sassy. Oh so, my gosh. Um, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that we have a chance to connect here. I, I just was so happy when I, I mean, I'm always happy when I see your posts and see what you're up to and see your deep thoughts and your fun thoughts and your dancing <laughs> videos and stuff. So for the listeners out there, if you don't follow Amy Sullivan on Instagram, she is a great follow. Definitely follow her. Um, and just, is it Amy Sullivan at Amy Sullivan on Instagram? Um, on Instagram, it's, uh, it's Amy Sullivan Therapy. Okay. got it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and when I saw your post, I don't remember exactly what you said, but you were talking about what we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. I thought, Oh, that would make such a good topic for mm -hmm. conversation. And I was so glad yeah. when you were like, sure, I'll come on and talk about it. Yeah. So, um, so again, the listeners have probably not heard, not seen that post potentially. So we'll do a little, kind of framing of the conversation. And I'll let you know, um, thank you, first of all, for forwarding to me your document. Uh, I forget what you called it. it, not a thesis, it was a- It's a thesis, yeah. A thesis, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so when you sent that to me, I spent some time going through it and I'm really gonna need an education <laughs> from you in this conversation <laughs> about a lot of stuff in there. Um, yeah. And I, th 
and and with that, I think that is what will be so instructive for people because the sense I got when I took a look at it is I did pull away some major themes and I want to share with you what I took away as like a consumer of the information Um, and then have you really kind of go into what it's real, what it's about, like whether or not my understanding was on point or not. So having said that, let's just kind of put that a little bit to the side for now. And I would love for you to just share a little bit with people listening. I mean, I've known you for a long, long time. I know. Um, You're my and- first yoga teacher. In oh my God. Oh my God. I don't, oh, I don't think I, maybe we've talked about this before. We have. Yeah. Long time okay. ago. Yeah. yeah. I actually remembered when we were setting this up, I remember sitting with you in Whole Foods in Charlestown. Do you remember that? <laughs> I do. That was right. probably like, oh God, eight or nine years ago, maybe. It was a long time ago. Yeah. That was after the yoga journal cover. So that was like yeah. 2014, I think. Oh, okay. So not that long. <clears throat> 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Yeah. Eight years ago. 70, okay. 30, so, yeah. 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 And we look the same. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. I know we age so well, don't we? (laughs) All the yoga, all the yoga. Um, So, so having said that we've known each other for a long time and I want people listening, um, you know, maybe they saw you on the cover of yoga journal and were like, Oh, I'd like to know more about that person, you know? So just tell us a little bit about, I know you have a long yoga journey, so you can kind of pick and choose a little bit about what you <laughs> just to kind of, you know, give people a sense that are listening, like what you're doing now, what your path has been, mm-hmm. uh, because this going into university is a little bit different than what your path has been before. So I, right. I leave it up to you to share maybe what you want to share to give people a sense of who you are before we get into the details. Mm, sure. Love to. Um, I started my yoga journey in LA. I was, um, I was training for the LA marathon that I never ran because I had a knee injury from being a basketball player and a hip hop dancer at Brandeis. And um, at that point, I think I had probably like six or seven like knee surgeries, but it was on my bucket list. And my roommate at the time was um, training for the marathon. So I was at the gym because it was raining when it used to rain (laughs) in LA. And uh, so I went to the gym and I was like super frustrated. My knee hurt. I'm walking down the stairs and I see all these people in line with yoga mats. And so this is like, you know, early 90s, midnight, mid 90s. So Madonna was really popular then. So I'm like, Madonna looks good. She does yoga. So I can thank Madonna for getting me in line at yoga. Um, and then I loved it and I took some classes and then I came home to Boston and you were my first class at the BAC in Southie, which I later took over as my first teaching gig at the BAC. Um, and then my schedule changed or your schedule changed. And you were like, well, why don't you come to the studio? And I was like, what's the studio? And you're like Baptiste in the South end. And I remember turning the corner and like smelling that citrus um, and like the, the heat that came out of that room. And it was like a holistic moment of like, Oh, like, Oh my God, like I'm home. Like, this is, this is my home. And it 
Baptiste became my home for years. Um, all the teachers and just the trainings, um, being with Baron in Hawaii and like the people that I did those trainings with are still people that like are, you know, a, a handful are like super important to me. We've been on this journey. Um, especially Jane Cargill, who today is her birthday. And we've actually done like so many trainings together, which is hilarious. Um, so, so then I started teaching and I taught for a long time, um, many, many years. I had private clients and was like, like blessed to teach pretty much everywhere in Boston. Um, all the equinoxes, which was sports club at the time, um, I mean, I literally have taught at every North End Yoga for a little while, Back Bay for a little while, and then kind of Down Under became my home. Um, and like they, they only had one studio at the time, and I was just rocking like Down Under Yoga. Newton had clients, and then um, I got this opportunity to go to Northern California and start a yoga retreat center on a farm. And so me, the city girl. <laughs> from um you know city ocean girl I go to a farm I felt like Paris Hilton in the simple life I was like completely like, lost and um it was quite the experience but and then that brought me to LA because um for a yoga therapy program at LMU and you're supposed to do the program in like two to three years and I was like I don't know if I can do LA for two to three years but I can do one so let me just dig in so I did the whole program in one year and um, I started teaching at the yoga works there. And um, the LA yoga scene is so different. And for those that like, you know, that are teachers out there, it's really hard when you have your, your niche and your following, like, especially when you're, you teach for a long time in the same place. It's like people come find you from all different, from all those studios that I, that I taught at, like they found their way into Down Under. They always knew that I was there. And so I kept starting new places over, like when I went to Northern California, I started a teacher training up there. So um, in Healdsburg, it's called the Yogan Center. I started running trainings there where they were like weekend, weekend long trainings that I um, designed around the chakras. So they were like seven week, seven month programs. So one weekend a month, each designed around a chakra. Um, we, uh, we grew an Ayurvedic garden, like ev everything had to do with the element and the chakra. It was really like a complete immersion. It was, it was really awesome. Um, and then I went to LA to do the yoga therapy program and I ended up just staying. Um, and I loved, so yoga therapy is kind of, um, for those of you that don't know, it's like, so the three sort of major yoga gurus who kind of brought the yoga to the west was first of all the grandfather was krishnamacharya right so he brought um his students were his son dasakachar patabi joyce and bks ayengar so he developed these personal practices for the his students and those personal practices became what we know as like the tradition right so Patabi Joyce was like super virile and strong and athletic. And he created sort of this Ashtanga series based on the, the practice that Krishnamacharya gave him. Ayengar had polio. So 
he his had you know a lot of um, a lot more restorative poses, a lot more um, props, a lot more like stability and and, and attention to detail, which Iyengar created in his. And Desigachar was the one that was like yoga. Yoga should be a personalized practice that it should it should have a teacher and a student and someone that would know like a guru, right? So guru means light and dark, someone that shows you your darkness, but holds that space for you and knows like all of your mayas, like your, your body, your, your, your body, your mind, your, your wisdom, your soul energy, someone that can see through all those and helps you develop those practices. So a lot of my teachers that I studied with were Desikachar students like Larry Payne and Amy Wheeler and Eden Goldman and Lori Fazio. So um, it's, it was cool to kind of get that straight from the lineage where before it was kind of like watered down in a lot of ways and, and flow yoga. So um, I really enjoyed that aspect of yoga therapy of, I think that's kind of what I was, the reason why I got into yoga in the first place was I was, it's really funny because on the on the East Coast, I was kind of like one of those like new age yogis, you know, that talked about things, talk, you know, expanded, talked about chakras, was into all of those things. Yeah. And then on the on the West Coast, I was like harsh and hardcore and like really, I was like, oh my God, it's so so crazy. Um, you know, the different the different views. Mm-hmm. Um so after my yoga therapy practice, I actually, uh, I got into a car accident that was pretty debilitating in 2017 that um, I was left with post-concussion syndrome and lots of damage to my spine, my neck and my low back that was like leaning on nerves. And it completely changed my yoga practice. And it's never been the same since. Um, And it changed the way I taught, changed the way I move, it changes the way that I look at yoga as well. And so I became less and less interested in, I was already becoming less and less interested in the asana, but now even more so of really the the, the healing aspects of it. And so around 2019, I was sort of teaching, I, I, I got the opportunity, well, just a, the in between. So 2017 was a car accident. And then from 2017 to 2019, I was really blessed with like just all of these opportunities that just kind of lined up (laughs) that it was like, okay, I'm going here and I'm going here. And I literally just put my stuff in storage. I traveled for almost two years and I went to China a couple of times to do teacher trainings out there with yoga journal. Um, I did a ton of retreats. I finished my teacher trainings. I did other people's teacher trainings. Like it was just like a super phenomenal, uh, un, like just pleasant surprise, like didn't plan on it. And then when 2019 rolled around, I was, I was a little lost. Um, and I remember hiking with a friend in LA and she said, and I'm telling you this story cause it's so funny and ironic. So she says, um, you know, you might benefit from going to therapy. And I said, you know, I've always had a spiritual guide. I've always had yoga ment- yoga therapy mentors, like I have never really done well with therapy. Like I don't like it. And I just haven't, I haven't found someone I've tried a couple times throughout my lifetime, but like never really found a good therapist. So like, you gotta go, you gotta go. 
to my, to my lady. She's awesome. So it's kind of like stereotypical. And I told her this too. So she thinks I can say this and she thought she thinks it's funny because I walk in and she, it's like a typical, like Beverly Hills, like what you imagine a therapist. She's had a lot of work done. She's like six foot something. She has horses or, you know, she's, she's wearing like riding boots. Like she's drop dead gorgeous. And I'm like, this is hilarious. So, um, and she was instrumental because she was awesome. And she was just like very practical and she would take her whiteboard out and would do something. And I'd be like, oh yeah, I, we do that in yoga therapy. And she's like, it's like talking to a colleague. Like, why don't you do this? And I was like, no, I'm going to be 50. I'm not going back to grad school. It's been over 20 something years since undergrad. Like there's no way all those school loans, like all the things, all the excuses. And she was like, you're still going to be 50 in a couple of years. You're still that, you know? Um, so I really, you know, she was super instrumental and in like one of those, and I only saw her like literally like less than a handful of times. And she made such a, um, you know, such a mark that I went to go check out Pacifica, which is in Santa Barbara outside in Carpinteria, Carpinteria, I should say. And um, it was just one of those like, Baptiste moments where I got on campus and it, it's it's a very charged land like there's a there's a Vedanta uh, temple or there's in the back in the back and there's it's on Jesuit land so it's it's just like it's exactly what you would want it to be and what you think it would be and it's um it's very charged it's very spiritual um and I went you know we took a tour and I was like I don't care how much this costs. Like I'm in. So the, the program is set up. It's one weekend a month that you go there and you live there in these high-end dorms and they feed you and you're sort of immersed from Friday morning to Sunday night. And that was about four months of that until now we've been on Zoom for 12 hours a day <laughs> from Friday morning to Sunday night. Um, so I'm wrapping up this chapter. I have, I just had my second to last weekend. So my last weekend at Pacifica is next month in March. And then I graduate in May. Wow. Wow. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> what a way to catch up. I mean, that mm -hmm. is quite, so there's that's so many, just the re that's just the highlights. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's so many different questions that came to my mind as you were talking. So, you know, I, I'm not quite sure where to go. First of all, thank you for sharing that kind of chronology. That's just fascinating. Um, one of the things that I wonder if we go back to when you first mentioned yoga therapy as something you were going into, what was the thought there? Like, what, what did you think you wanted to do with yoga therapy information different from teaching yoga classes? Like what was kind of the motivation there? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I felt that, I guess you get more of, um, you're more invested and you're also more engaged and you're, you also get to see people's path when you are working with someone individually. And so as a yoga therapist, um, I would take on clients and it's a, it's a, it's basically like short-term therapy, like short-term yoga therapy. So 
a yoga therapy client comes to me because they they've tried all other things. So sometimes I'm an advocate for them to try and figure out like what all of their pieces that like, whether they have like an autoimmune disease or if they have gut issues or if they have migraines or, you know, so my job is to, which is really different from being a therapist as a yoga therapist, I'm the problem solver. Like they come to me because they, they're out of options. They've tried all different things. Some students come to me because they want a meditation practice or they want a daily practice and they want me to help arrange one and create one for them. Um, and that daily practice is that's basically shifting the energy that you're in, that you're currently in. And you do that practice every day for 15 minutes a day so that you're shifting your own energy to get to a place where you feel differently. And so I love the yoga therapy because I empower people. I teach them. I try to, I try to teach them like why we're doing this and why things are important and why, a, you know, an everyday daily practice is much better than like a twice weekly group practice and what it means in terms of your, your motivation and in, in terms of, um, being autonomous instead of being led and don't get me long wrong like being led practices like it's a great it's not like one's less than or better than it's more like whatever the student is ready for like mm -hmm. it's okay like it's a it's a path and everybody's path is different so there's no judgment um it's just whatever um whatever place in the process the student is at and so the private practice is for you to recognize your energetic imprint that you're in and then you apply the practice and it shifts your energy and that can help with anxiety that can help with depression that can help with um you know the 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 manifestations the physical manifestations that happen in the body those are harder because you're, you're going to have to you, you need other help you need Mm -hmm. um, you need doctors, you need a body worker, you need, um, you know, a nutritionist or an, a naturopath, like because because it's manifested in the body, then you're going to need someone else to help you and to collaborate with to help bring those symptoms back to like mm -hmm. Ayurveda says, like sort of back to the root of things. Mm -hmm. So, so would you say that, I mean, some of the examples that you shared are physical um, manifestations either on their own or with clinical conditions connected to them, or maybe mm -hmm. psychological or psychosocial or, you know, mm -hmm. the origin, like you say, could be different. Is it that, however, is it that the people that come to you as a yoga therapist are coming to you with a physical concern or do they come to you sometimes? Like when I hear therapy, of course, I think, talk therapy, psychotherapy, is that also a type of referral that you might get? Or is it always people with a physical concern and you work with those folks? It's all different. So okay. my, my yoga therapy practice is different than my current therapy practice. So um, the therapy practice is very different. In fact, when I went to Pacifica, it was like everything that I had, that I had skills in, I had to like kind of put away because therapy is different. Therapy is 
the the client is the problem solver. I'm not like I'm I'm holding space, and it's very right. different skills, active listening skills. So, but the yoga therapy client could be literally anyone. Could be someone like I said that's either anxious or depressed with no physical symptoms. Um, right. They could have spinal issues. I mean, I've had, I mean, I've I've had someone come to me that's had a broken heart. You know, um, how to get over somebody. So it really just depends. Like I said, it's like, usually people come to yoga therapy because all other things have failed. It's like, I'm desperate. I need help. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, tell me, cause I, I thought, and I don't want to get, I mean, we can go wherever this goes. I don't necessarily want to get kind of wrapped up in the languaging, although I'm curious, cause I never actually talked to someone with your expertise before. Oddly, I just, for whatever reason have not, I thought at one point, yoga alliance had changed the registration or the use of the word therapy yoga therapy or something and then yep then i also have a memory of there was a separate group of people who called themselves yoga therapists can you just talk a little bit yep. about like that designation and maybe just how it differs from yoga teachers right so yoga alliance um and I'll keep my opinions about yoga alliance. Yeah, that's why I don't want to necessarily make it about them. I'm just trying to yeah. understand a little more about like what a yoga therapist does. And you've shared a lot already that's really helpful. That's just kind of in the back of my mind. And I thought it had something to do with what you can and can't do, which again, if that lives under the auspices of some created set of rules, I don't want to necessarily get into that. I'm just trying to get a better sense of you know, you have yoga teachers, you have yoga therapists, and then you have therapists. Yes. And I understand now you're saying you're training to be a therapist in the role of being like a sounding board, holding space for a client where they're the problem solver. You mm-hmm. describe being a yoga therapist as more of an active problem solver where someone's coming to you saying, I'm sort of out of options. I need some help. And in that mm-hmm. role, it sounds like you're not just a sounding board. You're actually giving directives or exactly mm-hmm. is yoga part of that sometimes like movement part of that. Uh, yep. Of course. Yeah. Okay. It's all, so yeah. Any, anything that you can just, we can kind of button this up with anything that you want to, I, again, I don't really want to get into the <laughs> yoga lines part. Yeah. But it's just it's part of what's yeah. in my ears. The yoga alliance part was because the word therapy and therapeutic, um, that there was no certification around that aspect of it. So yoga alliance was saying that you can no longer call it therapeutic yoga because of that word, that word holds a lot of, um, you know, people are licensed therapists. So that, that word, that context. So yoga alliance took that and said, you no longer can use this unless you're certified yoga therapist like it's it's the actual yoga therapy to help delineate those lines and so there's the um the iyta which is the international yoga therapy association um and actually one of my teachers amy wheeler is the president of that and that's that's a basically like the yoga alliance for yoga therapists and they have their own conferences and so they um yeah so that's that's yoga therapy it's very specific and separate from being a yoga teacher and being a therapist. And Got if it. you're a therapist, you have to be 
not just certified. You have to have a license. Right. I actually sort of remember because back in the day I was a licensed social worker and I actually mm -hmm. saw clients as a social worker and I had okay. to sit for a registry exam and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, there was a point in my life before I started teaching yoga that I thought I wanted to be a social worker and that was part of my journey. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I can relate to that on, on that level. So, so you have this yoga therapy experience. You obviously had this whole runway of yoga teaching experience in these different locations. Mm -hmm. And I love just, I, LA has been on my bucket list for so long, like just from all the stories. So I still have yet to go and experience it, but I just loved how you talked about the differences um, between East mm -hmm. coast and West coast as you experienced them as a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell me, now that we're really making the distinction between yoga therapy and therapy, like what, what was the motivation there? Because now you're really sort of, not that you ever put anything on the back burner or a back seat from what makes you, you with all your experience. However, as you said, being a therapist, a talk therapist is definitely a different role than being a yoga teacher. So I guess my first question is how I'm assuming you feel great. Like this is the time, like to kind of put the teaching part to the side mm -hmm. for therapy. So tell me a little bit about how you came to that decision and what motivated you there. The, it kind of was organic and, um, my yoga therapy clients, like I said, was sort of short-term therapy. They would come to me and I would help them over a speed bump. And it would be like, you're great. Like we're good, you know, like six, seven, eight months later and they would leave. And, um, and I felt like, great, I did my job. I got them out of, you know, over their hump and they have their practice and they can always come back. And then they started coming back, but they started coming back with different things. And, and I was like, well, you know, and then I found myself in like tricky territory of like, mm -hmm. this feels psychological, this feels, mm -hmm. but it also like, I didn't, it, I was kind of out of my scope of practice at times. And then when I met the therapist, I was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Like it's, it's just naturally aligned. Like now I can expand my skills and I can offer them, um, you know, and when I went to Pacifica, I, it was a very, when I, when I found out, like it was the first couple of, I think it was the first or second quarter of Pacifica. It was like, you are not the problem solver. And I was like, wait, what? Like, what am I doing here? Like, what do you do then? You know? So I had to like put all of these skills to the side and just develop new ones. And it's mm -hmm. been a, like a crazy, beautiful journey. I mean, to enter grad school, so like grad, psych, psychology grad school at 50 or almost 50 was like, I, I didn't really receive any new information in terms of like what, ha, you know, what my life has been personally, but to look at it through a different lens has been transformational. Like just did not know what I was getting myself into um, because you're, you're taking these psychological concepts and you're taking your family and you're taking you and you're trying to apply you to these concepts. So it, 
expanded so much in it. Now I have a language and now I have a completely different system to look at myself and to look at my childhood and my family. And it was eye-opening and so healing. And I'm, and I, you know, there's always that tricky line um, of sort of what that term is like spiritual bypassing. Like, could I have gotten to those things early in my life if I didn't have my yoga practice, if I, if I were forced to do something else? But I like to think of it as like, it was on my path. Like I was meant to do my yoga practice. I was meant to go this because everything along the way led me to, to where I am. Right. Um, right. right. And yeah. I think too, as you're describing this, I, I, I seem to recall at some point a saying something along the lines of like, when, and maybe this comes from way back in the days of Freud, but to be a good therapist, you have to be in therapy yourself. So kind of that self-examination that happens so there's absolutely the learning yeah. you can apply. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I mean, I think the other thing that came to mind when you were just talking over the past couple of years, I've done, um, I don't want to say a huge deep dive, but I've done a lot of learning about neuro-linguistic programming, which I'm really fascinated by, which definitely isn't therapy. However, mm -hmm. it is a way of interacting with people where you are mm -hmm. more of the observer and just the little bit that I know, it's like my antenna is way up now when I talk to people, especially when I work with teachers in my own program, which is more of like a one-on-one -on -one coaching type thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wonder for you, when you were just talking about um, putting to the side your skills as a doer and a problem fixer, would you say that what replaced that was more of like a super honed listening antenna? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You learn active listening. You learn how to attune in a different way. Um, polyvagal theory by Stephen Porges in trauma um, talks about this sort of um, co-regulation and neuroception where your, your body, and we know this in yoga too, um, your body attunes to each other. There's nothing better for a sort of a dysregulated client is, is a regulated nervous system with them. So we become their co-regulation and that's in, and it's all ha having to do with the vagal, the vagus nerve, which you know about. And it's, um, it's related to all of our senses and it goes into our organs and the vagus nerve goes into our eyes and into our, our nose and our ears and our sense of smell. But all of those have to do with how someone feels safe by mm -hmm. your senses, by looking at someone, because someone that has had trauma, they're already hypervigilant. They're already, you know, attuned to the outside world to make sure of their safety. So anything that we can do as therapists to find that co-regulation. Um, so I've started to, I'm really interested in trauma theory and that's that was the interlay in my thesis is, is combining depth psychology, which is uh, analytical psychology that was developed by Carl Jung and trauma theory and combining those to help um, help a woman because thesis you you it's a very formulaic um, structure so it's you really have to gear it to a specific population so my thesis was about women 
on their journey towards individuation, which means on their journey towards wholeness. So Carl Jung developed this concept of um, individuation that you are in the first 40, 30 to 40 years of your life, you develop a strong ego. And then in your later years, you start to develop the desire to kind of pull all the things that you don't know about yourself, your shadow, and you pull those things in to start to see. And that's what therapy really is, is helping to reveal what's unconscious to consciousness into awareness. And so you start to develop these things of like, like I said, for grad school, for me was like pulling up all these weeds of things that I didn't know that I, I knew in my own consciousness, but now I'm looking at them through a different lens. Mm-hmm. So you take you so you take these these things that you're learning and you you process them, you resolve them in order to move towards individuation. And individuation is a sense of like wholeness with your soul. Mm-hmm. And there's three, uh, according to Jung, it's integrating your your shadow, which is your unconscious that you don't know about yourself your anima and animus, which is mostly in my thesis and anima and animus. And I'll just, I'll get to that in a second. But then the third aspect is like your whole self, like big S self. Um, and so those are the three ways that you integrate into wholeness and anima and animus were, is very interesting because back then it was all geared around gender. So you're, you are a male it was very specifically written in the thirties and or in the twenties. It's, it's written as a male, you integrate anima, and as a female, you integrate animus, and it correlates with the opposite gender. So anima means soul, animus means spirit. And so for a male, which is kind of funny, even in the definition, so as a male, anima is your, your muse, your creativity, your um your connection to the world it's like your sense of wholeness <laughs> animus to a woman is your inner bitch <laughs> she is she's uh judgmental and critical and perfectionistic like even in the definition right like who doesn't yeah. want to who doesn't want an anima <laughs> you know right. like um so a lot of post feminists post jungian feminists have a lot to say about that definition um mm-hmm. So my, my experience in grad school was like, you know, your, it was being presented in school the first session when we were actually in person that in order to integrate animus, a woman had to have a positive relationship with a man to change her representation of a man in order to help heal and vice versa for a man and a woman. And I was like, but that's not fair. Like you have people now that are, that we have same sex couples and we have people that are non-binary. So where does that fit in? And the professor was like, I don't know. And I was like, what? Like, how, do, how, am, how am I at like this like progressive uh, yeah. psych, like psychology school? Like, how do we not know this? And so that's usually what happens with thesis. And then that was the seed that was planted to help yeah. uncover that in my thesis. Okay. All right. So let me just try to break it down a little bit in terms of what you just shared, because it was a great segue into what 
I wanted to really dive into today, which is the subject of your thesis. So for those out there who aren't familiar with, and I, I admit, I don't remember a lot of my initial psychology where we talked about Freud and Jung, mm -hmm. this idea that there's this process of what, what we're calling individuation, which I guess I mm -hmm. could say in simple terms, becoming yourself, becoming an individual, right? So yep. it's this combination of things that you really didn't have control over, which were kind of in your upbringing, things that were kind of done to you. And I don't even mean that in a trauma, big T sort of way, just kind mm -hmm. of like you're being raised by your parents, you're being influenced by things that, you know, as a child, you can't. So there's that whole process sort of being done to you. And then you're an adult and you have free will and you can exercise free will. But by that point, there's all of what has affected you when you didn't have that free will that mm -hmm. shapes now how you see the world. So it sounds like part of what you're talking about when you talk about this becoming an individual or individuation is kind of that calling to the surface, all of that kind of bringing it to the light, all of that that shapes who you are that you're not conscious of. So is that, am I sort mm -hmm. of on the right track here? Yeah, you are oh. on the right track, yeah. All right, so, so from my reading of your thesis, it sounded like that was the process. And, and I don't wanna say overlaid on top of that, but along with that, it's what you're now describing, which is kind of the development of a man and a woman as it relates to their psychology or the psychological construct of those two types, which right out of the gate, as you say, is a somewhat outdated paradigm because it's now connected to these two identity constructs, sexual identity constructs that now in today's world, we know there's so much more fluidity in those two associations. So it sounds like what you're saying is in your learning about this, I don't want to say outdated construct, but this construct from back in the day, you raised a question about, hey, is how, how do we handle people who associate differently? And it sounds like they were, the, the folks at the school were just like, well, you know, <laughs> we're still kind of working with this theory. You're sort of on your own. And was that then the genesis for your thesis that you wanted mm -hmm. to sort of, okay. And I remember I, I seem to, when I was writing down um, some notes, when I was reading the thesis, you had said, what relationship does gender have on the development of the feminine and how does it affect her? So I, I, I remember that being one kind of central point. And then I also, and you mentioned this a couple seconds ago, noticed there was this whole theme of trauma throughout the narrative. So mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about how those are connected? Because I think for me, like when I look back at my life, I don't feel like I've gone through trauma, big T trauma. However, yeah. I know that there are other experiences that might qualify. And so let's talk a little bit about how trauma fits in with this process of becoming an individual. How do you see that? Um, so 
so many ways to go, right? Um, so part so my thesis basically, the title of it is re-envisioning animus and healing from patriarchal trauma on a woman's journey towards individuation. So the trauma piece comes in because of what you just talked about, that in a patriarchal society that we've been in for like hundreds of years, um, that there's a devaluation of the feminine and the feminine gets correlated with female. And that's because, and I prove this in my, in my thesis, is that there's, there's history of the feminine wound, even in psychology. So Freud set, like started off by saying like women are inferior because they do not have a penis. So like it's the, it's the penis envy starts with this inferiority and she lives her life like wanting the penis. <laughs> this, is, this is Freud, the um, yeah, infantile, infantile theory. So that was, you know, that, that was disproven of like, no, there's, you know, the, this is back to like, again, the correlation with your gender parts that make you who you are. Mm -hmm. This generation that we're in now would have a field day with that. Like that's, you know, that's, that's not how you identify as your, the parts that you were born with. Right. So the, the idea came from this and it's also part of what they call in psychology is your, um, you go through the stages when you, when you grow, you go through your first stage is your matriarchal stage. You're attached to the mother. And mm -hmm. so for a woman, she gets attached to the mother and the boy gets attached to the mother, but then you have to move in towards the patriarchal stage. And there's a difference for a woman moving into the patriarchal stage for a boy or a girl moving into that stage and a boy moving into that stage, because a boy has to sort of a, a girl has to disidentify with some aspect of herself and mm -hmm. the boy looks at the feminine looks at the female as less than or different than like in in that part of the stage and so mm -hmm. that's where the sort of feminine gets devalued is like that the the boy has to leave that stage of his mother and so that happens within society and mm -hmm. now the the feminine gets devalued everywhere not just in not just in female not just in women it even even in society you throw like a girl like you you know if you cry you cry um you know you you know women can't cry in the workplace or all these sort of like um basically microaggressions of how we devalue the feminine in society is that the women get paid less um you know there's, there's so many aspects of it Mm -hmm. So we call it like a, we, we call it the patriarchal trauma to mm -hmm. a woman where we, we have to disidentify with our feminine in order to be successful yeah. in a patriarchal society. So we have to put that feminine aspect away. And if you look over history, history changes because of the role of the woman, you know, in terms of her relating to herself, her her resilience, her strength, how she looks at things. And so the, the aspect of the, the trauma piece um, into the thesis was how does trauma relate to being a woman in society? And how does that relate to anima and animus? Because if you're trying, you're trying to integrate animus, but animus 
is is everywhere. Excessive masculine is inside of, of, of everyone because we live in excessive masculine society. So yeah. how do you how do yeah. you integrate something that's you're everywhere? already full up anyway? Right. Right. So mm. it's it's a challenge, right? It's a it's a challenge and and um there's no easy answer because we're talking about we're talking about like really big inter, inter um intricate concepts. So mm-hmm. anima and animus are part of what's called an archetype. Yeah. And an archetype is um it's like an imprint. It's an imprint in your soul of how you relate to things. And unfortunately, how your soul may relate to things may have to do with your individual self, but but not necessarily the, the collective self, meaning mm-hmm. society and culture. And then and also Jung would say collective unconscious where we have DNA and we have lots of societies running through us, which is how we can have these sort of archetypal images that kind of come through us in dreams. And that could take us into a whole other direction. Yeah. Let me just ask you too, and especially with your background before you went into grad school, when we talk about like feminine energy and masculine energy, and at times I've heard people talk about um, sometimes those things are not defined necessarily as being attached to the sex masculine and feminine it's more energetic is that similar to these archetypes so when you're saying like women are being bombarded with this masculine energy could it be that that doesn't necessarily mean i'm working in a workplace where i'm surrounded by men it could be i'm being surrounded i'm being bombarded with that archetype type quality just out in the world, in advertising, in languaging, mm-hmm. in all sorts of things that don't necessarily look like men. Right. And that's really, that's basically the whole like big long journey of my thesis is to delineate masculine from male and deline- yeah. delineate the archetypal idea of what animus is to masculine and to male. And yeah. the same thing with anima, like you have to separate it from the gender because right. ma- what you're saying is, is, and I'm glad you're bringing this up because masculine and feminine have the qualities have a lot to do with anima and animus. And the, if we, we, we have to de-genderify them. We have to de-genderize them. I just made up yeah. words. I don't really know if those are words, but yeah. um, because masculine energy is, and this is what I come to at the end of my thesis is that. Um, masculine doesn't have to relate to male. So why are we putting anima with male and animus with female if we can, I I propose and and other post-Jungian theories propose that we can have both within us. Like if I'm out of balance, I can, I can, I can look to my archetype of anima. I have anima inside of me, even if I'm a woman, because anima is creative and it's, it's a muse and it's connected and it's soul energy. I have soul and spirit inside of me. So right. why wouldn't I have, those are the definitions of anima and animus. So why wouldn't I have soul and spirit inside right. of me? Right. So if I go out of balance, looking at it in terms of archetypal instead of, and I, and I get why, because look, Jung was the first one to kind of go into the soup of the soul. 
Like we didn't know what was in the soul. We didn't know. So he, he looked at them and gave them names and labels and tried to define them to help us to understand them. So I don't take it away from, I mean, these were in the twenties and thirties. That's all we knew. Well, that's not true because in Greek time, there was, and a lot of other cultures, there are hermaphrodites, there are, there are revered mm-hmm. non-binary, but I think, in, again, in our patriarchal sort right. of colonia, colonized, colonized society, we have these, you know, binary structures to keep them, you know, to keep in place in terms of how, how that, that it, its own energy tries to keep these things in place. So I get why Jung came up with these. And now it's just time to expand them so that it's inclusive to everybody. And that, um, and, and Jung would say that himself, Jung would say like, this is, this is what I've developed because it was in relationship to his own anima, how he came up with this. So he was like, well, if, if I have an anima, then a woman has to have an animus, but he just kind of did it opposite instead of kind of, um, honoring the energy as it is. So I have. I have masculine energy inside of me that like that needs structure and needs time and it's sun energy. It's very like yoga, Ida Pingala and in Shashumna, um, you know, the Nadi system of like feminine and, and masculine. And I have feminine inside of me. I have moon energy and I have, um, and, and to even write this thesis, I was fighting against my own masculine. Like my feminine wanted to like, go into all these books and, you know, just go deeper and deeper. And my masculine was like, no, 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 (laughs) we have deadlines. We have, we need to meet these things. So I was like fighting against my own. Um, So to help delineate those from the gender is the reason why the feminine gets devalued in society. So if we separate them and make it just feminine quality, it's not related to female. It's, it's, feminine quality. I mean, we can call it something else. Um, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think given when Jung lived, the construct of sexuality is tied to the theories and the, the propositions that he wrote about and holds out that, you know, last to this day and are referred to. However, mm-hmm. like you're saying, there's this evolution of not only language, but lived experience that goes back and sort of questions that. And mm-hmm. I also totally get what you're saying about sort of decoupling this idea of masculine and feminine from the sexual organs and just making it sort of agnostic to sex and more just qualities. And I love those examples you gave because it really made it um, tangible, like feminine, Mm -hmm. masculine qualities. What are they? Energies, what are they? And, you know, so that now I feel like I'm sort of more on track and I hope the listeners are as well. So the piece that, I'm wanting to understand more is, you know, and I was going to say as a woman, but again, we're trying to kind of decouple it from, you know, the sex part. Um, Where is there, I mean, you're describing a, um, a, a world where masculine qualities slash energy are sort of more predominant than feminine. And I just want to sort of, um, when you were referring to like Greek society and other parts of the world versus the United States, it sort of reminds me of, I was listening to a podcast recently about um, two neuropsychologists and they went into like Afghanistan, I believe, and they were trying to make some changes in how 
healthcare was provided and they went specifically to the matriarchs in the communities because they knew mm -hmm. if they were adopting certain things, the men would mm -hmm. follow along. And they mm -hmm. were describing it from that perspective of, you know, and even I think in some African cultures, it's like the women are really the ones that rule everything. And the guys mm -hmm. are sort of like doing the hard labor work, but it's really the women that are sort of kind of the, the leaders of the communities. So mm -hmm. that, I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit that sort of sort of flies in the face of a little bit of what we're talking about here. So I guess my first question would be, are these constructs, I mean, they can't certainly be United States based, but like how, how are they, are they solid or are they movable? Do they change in different cultures depending on what might be indigenous to that culture? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think more patriarchal societies are more westernized because of sort of the, the white colonization of what right. happened within that society to try to keep You're right. um, sort of that, that sort of white, um, you know, privileged yes. structure in place. Yes, that and makes so sense. I can't really speak about like other cultures. I know that, um, just because of like my minimal understanding um, of, I just know that there are, there are other countries in the world that have no problem having a woman as a president. And yeah, we, yeah. You and know, it, does, it does speak to kind of what's the lens through which you see the world. What are the, I mean, I don't want to bring up things like critical race theory and systemic racism, but sure, it's sort sure. of at that level. It's like, if the you know, regardless of what your personal beliefs are, if there is an infrastructure overlaid on a society, then that's the filter through which things are done. And so right. it sounds like what you're saying here, and those two examples that I shared, you know, are not within, you know, kind of the four walls of the United States where we have certain ways that things are set up. So, um, okay, so now, for this last piece, just help me connect. <laughs> you know, I mean, I guess partly the way I want to ask it, and I don't mean this to sound flippant, but am I sort of being traumatized all the time and I don't even realize it? <laughs> like, <laughs> like that is the trauma connection where I'm getting stuck. Like now I get, we're decoupling it from sex. We're kind of saying within the infrastructure of society, as we sort of know it in the Western world, there, mm -hmm. there is heavier on the masculine versus the feminine, both in mm -hmm. tactical action and behaviors and languaging and all of that. So does the trauma then come, like, do I not have agency over my way of being in the world because I'm now operating in this matrix where? Well, I think that you're touching upon a really good point. It's like, it's, it's all about your awareness and your experience. And that's where the empowerment piece comes on both ends. Like, so a, a woman can't survive in a society that the, the feminine, or let me get that. Let me, she can survive in a society that's ruled by patriarchal forces, but she can't thrive. So in order for women to thrive in a patriarchal society, the men have to do their work too. So that means in the same way, and it's very similar to what you're talking about, like it's very similar to the idea of privilege. Like 
white men have been rulers for a long time and they benefit from their power stance. So they have to, they have to do their spiritual work. They have to tap into their anima and animus and let it flow and give up that sense of power and control in order for other people to have sort of that equality. And until they do that, we're going to have a lot of like, I, you know, we don't live in African societies where the matriarchal, like you listen to that, like, that would be amazing. Who knows? You never know when someday. Um, but the, the, the trauma piece that, that got interlaid into um, the thesis is because of the patriarchal trauma, meaning the, the, the devalued, I, I basically did it on three levels, an individual level, a collective level, and an archetypal level in order to, for a woman to move through individuation. And believe me, I didn't start this way. <laughs> like this was the journey of like, wait, what? Like, well, how is she going to integrate animus if she's in a patriarchal society? And so that sort of like came through. And so it kind of just became this sort of sacred role of threes of um, individual and collective and archetypal. So an, an individual trauma um, is, and yes, you, you may, you may experience it on a daily basis. Um, can you imagine if you're a black woman in this society at that, you know, the intersectionality of being a woman and being black. So um, the, the kind of um, sort of microaggressions and that, that we have to deal with on a daily basis. So on an individual level, a woman heals her trauma by integrating her animus and doing her work by delineating what her, um, her experiences of trauma, resolving those aspects of herself and also resolving her, if she has any sort of those negative connotations with the archetype based on her experiences with men and delineating those within her in order to empower her and reclaim her own feminine. And if she does that, then that spills into the collective. Because if you have women that are reclaiming their feminine, and I talk about this a lot, like supporting women, you know, like the there's there's this idea, and I know this could probably go on for another hour, of um how women support each other instead of, you know, the what happens in society when we don't support each other and become sort of like jealous, jealousy or envy or how that because of their the lack of sense of of femininity again it's like taking the masculine the the competition and bringing it into sort of women so i think women supporting women can help the collective in addition to um men doing their work and integrating they're letting go of their excessive masculine being more vulnerable to and that means society is going to be like allow that too i mean men have right. men have been brought up to you know you can't cry you can't show emotions or you're being a girl or, or those kinds of things right and so if we do it on the individual level and we start to integrate and let it flow over into the collective level then the archetype changes because according to young the archetype includes all cultures all um all aspects all myths and um and images and imprints of all societies that make their way into the archetypal imprint of it and then in our in our culture we start to change it so mm -hmm. thanks to this generation they're changing it they're they're changing the the yeah. the conversation yeah. 
And yeah. it's actually bringing us back to old, um, old Greek times where hermaphrodites, as I've mentioned, and non-binary, and there's many cultures in Mexico, Hawaii, um, yeah. and that, that honor non-binary or um, transsexual individuals as, as revered um, instead of being you know, dehumanized as some do in westernized societies. Right, right. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, so many of the athletes who are male who have recently, like a Michael Phelps, shared his challenges with mental illness and how mm-hmm. that was seen as such a groundbreaking, courageous act. And yeah. would you say that that kind of action by a male is mm-hmm. kind of a bringing in more of the feminine and kind of not shunning, but sort of stepping outside the expectation of the male to keep everything inside. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I think there's, there's going to be pioneers from men who are revered to, to, um, be more vulnerable. Like I think about like a Tyler Perry who has been an advocate for, um, sexual assault of men and so I think that like, it's people like that, that, that share their stories and that, because just like every, everything gets pushed down in society, unless we bring it up, unless we, we, um, we normalize it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. I mean, it's not funny, but ha- having this discussion, I know for me, for the listeners, it's like, now we can see things like that almost through this particular lens as, as either reinforcing what has been or sort of bucking the trend to get us moving to a place where there is more acceptance and there is more balance energetically. The, mm-hmm. uh, as, as we kind of wrap up here, I want to just ask you, you know, kind of one follow-up to something that you said. Um, when you were talking about the shifting of things and that men, people who associate themselves as male with the behaviors and attributes that are part of that archetype. And you were talking about, you know, the work that they can do to sort of be more balanced. If you're associating as female, or if your behaviors and attributes are more in the female realm, can you continue to create balance in your own world, regardless of what actions other people take or don't take, you know, because we're talking about this as individuation within the construct of a society, whatever you want to call it, right. An environment, Mm -hmm. you know, a community where we can't control. It's kind of like stoicism. We can't control what anybody else does. Yeah but yet that affects us, but yet we have control over what we do, what we say, mm-hmm. how we are in the world. So is that still, I kind of want to end on an optimistic note, I guess I'm looking for like, <laughs> like we can still, and I don't even want to say as women, because again, it's not, we're kind of decoupling it from the sex. Right. Um, so I guess I'd say as individuals, can we create balance within our own being, regardless of what other people are doing or not doing? Absolutely. 
Okay. I think that that's the process of <laughs> um, that's the process of individuation, tying it all back to the beginning. It's it's bringing in what we don't know in order to us for us to feel more whole and more complete. And so if we honor that we get imbalanced and we there's a there's a fluidity of how to bring ourselves back into balance. So if we're more aware and we learn more balance, we learn how to be more centered and what you do in your life and in your environment makes a huge difference. Like what you do matters. So what you do matters within your own being and what you do matters in your environment. And because everything is connected, your environment is connected to the, the culture. And so, um, and yes, these things exist in the world on a systemic and, and on a, um, you know, a, a place that's been in place for a long time, but that doesn't mean that there isn't other things going on, you know, and that otherwise we would be China or we would be Russia, you know, like there, we're, we still have agency. And so um, I think that's why, I think that's why I love being a therapist is I love sitting with people that are, um, they need a safe space. And this kind of goes back to one of your other questions earlier on is, um, you know, the, like you said, like you specifically may not have experienced trauma, but the definition of trauma, any kind of trauma is the, the inability to process something as something was happening. So something was happening on the outside right. Right. and whether you were a child or whether you were, um, uh, there was just too much going on that you couldn't process it and you couldn't integrate it, that that can be traumatic. And so a lot of what we do in therapy is that we, we go back to the initial caregiver, especially in psychodynamic theory, we go back to the initial caregiver relationship of what you got and what you didn't get. And that sort of uh, your attachment style, uh, your attachment. Uh, your pattern of attachment and how that follows you into your relationships. And it shows up in certain ways as to, you know, if you had a secure caregiver, then you're probably more secure in the relationships. If you had an imbalanced caregiver, you might be more anxious or less trustful. Or if right. you had a caregiver that was uh, absent or not there, then you might have an avoidant personality because that's what, or an avoidant attachment style, because that's what you learned. And right. so individuals, no matter how you identify, if you become more aware of your imbalances and you, um, you start to bring up and uncover some of the things that you didn't know about your childhood at the same time, trying not to vilify your parents because they did the best that they could right. for the most right. part. And I've had a many clients that haven't had great parents, but, um, you know, hopefully, um, our listeners have had great parents that they understand that that aspect of it that we don't want to make our parents wrong or blame our parents they did right. the best that they could um but how do we how do we take what we know about ourselves and my like biggest mission is just to empower to help people become aware in the process while loving themselves while having compassion because ultimately that's the missing piece is that you know i've been like my, my thing is I've been so critical of myself and it's worked for me, you know, like I've been a, just a, a worker bee and just like worked hard and hustled, but the, the critical piece 
has kept me from growing because if you if you want healing, if you want to if you want to be a compassionate being, if you want to have peace, like you you have to practice it on yourself. Right. You can't you can't change something that's happened to you by beating yourself up because it's the same energy that created it. Right. And that's my favorite Einstein quote is oh, yeah. you can't, right? You can't yeah. Um anyway. yeah, you can't um you can't solve heal something, you can't solve a problem with the same energy that created it. Right. So that first integration is how can I be kinder to myself? I mean, it goes back to yoga, the first, uh, you know, ahimsa, kindness. How mm -hmm. can I be kinder to myself? Um, how can I understand these things? And so that's really my mission as a therapist is to create a, a safe space where someone gets to love themselves in the process yeah. of uncovering things that they don't know about themselves and to empower them to make a change and do something different to get different results. Yeah. And just the way that we're kind of wrapping up this conversation, the other reason that you're bringing up such great points and the reason it really resonates with me is because it sort of, in a way, separates it from kind of the geopolitical forces and brings it down to the individual and mm -hmm. just this concept of living in balance. And if we kind of strip away the terms animus and anime, animus and anima, anima, yeah. anime is different. <laughs> Um, uh, that it really is like you just said, it's like cr trying to find balance. If I'm running around the house crazy, I'm working on a deadline. If I need to stop and take five deep breaths to feel my feet on the ground and to mm -hmm. bring, I feel like it can be at that level and still be part of this conversation. It doesn't have to go to the conversation of, which I think is more charged for people when we start to talk about countries and cultures and things that mm. you may or may not believe in, or, you know, then it's like, mm. people start to get dug into their camps. It's like, Hey, we're just talking about living in a balanced way. And that requires some uncovering of, it sounds like what you're saying is some uncovering of the, the mindsets and the behaviors that you might have developed where you really didn't have a choice in a way. So it's just kind of how you sort of turned out. <laughs> right, right. Oh, and my I and my thesis in this conversation is the lens of I'm a white woman. So I'm yeah. gonna I'm going to give you the yeah. lens of what it's like as a white woman in society. And I can't speak for what it's like for a white man. I can't speak as a as a black woman, but um I think that that, you know, that's part of the thesis is that it's, yeah. it's my voice and this is my lens of how I see things and how I've lived the world. And um, what you're saying is so true because transformation happens in moments. They don't happen, like they happen, you know, in like conversations, like a little seed is planted, hopefully in some of your listeners' um, hearts of like, well, what, how do I become more balanced or what's my relationship to my masculine and feminine and how does that show up in my world? And how can I, um, you know, how, what is my relationship to my environment and my world? And do I want to make a change? And, and also the biggest thing I hope they get is like, oh yeah, beating myself up doesn't work or being harder on myself doesn't work. What if I tried the opposite? So I hope those are some takeaways that your listeners will get today, get to from today. Mm -hmm. Um, but transformation happens in moments. That's the empowerment is is in this moment, what do I need? Not what was taken from me, not what, you know, someone else thinks, but like, what do I need in this moment in order to find more balance? Mm. That's great. 
Well, I don't want to say anything else because it's <laughs> a nice place to end it. Um, so thank, oh gosh, I mean, thank you so much. I'm giving you like a little virtual hug here. Yes, I know. Yes. Thank you so much for inviting me oh, on. And this was like I, a little grad school, like in-service kind of lunch and learn sort of classroom vibe. I really... I really liked it. I really feel like, and this was different, you know, for the listeners who've been listening for a while, this was different than topic wise and just like getting into the terminology and, and being part of like the learning process at the graduate school level and everything you're going through. This is a really different kind of conversation. So um, mm -hmm. I really appreciate sh you sharing this and having this kind of be part of, you know, the mix of, of what, what I share with people on the podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so yeah. much for inviting me on and any kind of like follow up if you need questions answered, yeah. you need more information or links, I'm happy to, to yeah. share. And um, yeah, people invite again, you back anytime. Uh, yeah, tell people again how to find you on Instagram if they want to send you a DM, if anything was like thought provoking for them or they have questions yeah. about any of your um, uh not footnotes, but source material or any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I'm at Amy Sullivan therapy on Instagram. And then my website is still um, Amy Sullivan yoga.com. So you can okay. just go to my website and find me there, which is very yoga based. I don't have a new website yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's how they can contact you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, for sure. Places, yeah. <sighs> All right. Thank you so much, Karen. Been of a course. Pleasure. Yes, I'm going to end it here for the recording and then I'll catch up with you after um, after this. Uh, and this will actually, today is Monday, the 21st. This will go up a week from today. We'll go live okay. and I'll send you the link and then I'll follow up awesome. with you afterwards about that. All right, okay. thank you so much. It was a pleasure and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Karen. Bye. Bye. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to that episode before you go, I want to let you know about a new mini course I just created as of October, 2021. It's called the Yoga Anatomy Blueprint Learning Program mini course. It's essentially an introductory version to my signature program that teaches you anatomy so that you grow your confidence in sharing cues and sequences and in all those conversations you have with your students. If you're like some of the yoga teachers I speak to, you might feel as if you don't have the time to do my full program. That's one of the main reasons I created this mini course, which will give you all the same steps in my signature blueprint approach to teaching you anatomy and will allow you to complete it in much less time. There are 10 modules each of about 10 minutes each, and the entire program walks you through mini lessons from the larger program. You'll leave with specific new skills that you can start to use right away. You may also leave with a keen interest in enrolling in the larger program because your curiosity and confidence have been stoked. For you, the podcast listener, I'm offering $5 off the purchase price of the mini program, which is just priced at $27, so the cost will go down to $22 for you. Once you complete the mini course, you'll see in the next step section how to get a $50 credit to put towards the larger program should you decide to invest in that in the future.
To purchase the mini program, visit my website at barebonesyoga.com, click the link for online courses and select the mini course link. When you check out before you enter your credit card, enter the code podcast and you will receive the $5 off. I hope you enjoy the program. I hope it stokes your curiosity and builds your confidence. Namaste.